This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson, Senior Editor of Education Next. Thank you for joining us. As every school child knows, the U.S. Supreme Court declared in Brown v. Board of Education that school segregation was unconstitutional. But only a few people realized that just 20 years later, the Supreme Court in Milliken v. Bradley ruled that segregation between cities and suburbs did not violate the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Individual decisions, not state laws, had created the racial divide, the court decided. It was beyond the authority of the court to prevent that from happening. As a consequence, we've had more segregation in northern metropolitan areas. Nonetheless, the Seattle School District in the state of Washington made an effort to desegregate its schools in the late 1990s. It developed a choice plan that allowed families to pick their schools. If more families picked a school, then seats available, well, then the school could give preference to a non-white student if that would enhance integration at the school. A group of white families who called themselves parents involved in community schools filed a lawsuit saying the school board had discriminated on the basis of race. That's against the Constitution. Well, a majority of the Supreme Court in 2007 agreed with the plaintiffs, deciding that when race is used as a tiebreaker, it's acting contrary to the Constitution. Justice Stephen Breyer and three other justices dissented. Breyer's dissenting opinion is thought to be so significant it has been published as a book by the Brookings Institution and its title is Breaking the Promise of Brown, the Resegregation of America's Schools. So the dissent as published is preceded by a thoughtful introduction written by Thiru Vignaraja, who worked as one of Justice Breyer's law clerks at the time the decision was prepared and who has since served as the Deputy Attorney General for the state of Maryland. Well, I'm very pleased to have Thiru Vignaraja with me on the Education Exchange today. Thank you, Thiru, for, for joining me on the Education Exchange. My pleasure. Thank you for having me to discuss this important topic. Well, thank you. Uh, and uh, through exactly what was the policy of the Seattle School Board that led to this lawsuit by parents involved? Can you describe what the issue was? Of course. You know, Seattle was doing something quite ingenious. They were combining a commitment to school choice, that is, parents and their children could decide which of 10 or so high schools they wanted to send their kids, and they wanted to combat the segregation of schools by race that they saw both in Seattle and that they'd seen across the country. And the way they did that was they allowed oversubscribed schools to consider a number of tiebreakers. It wasn't just race, of course, it was whether you had a sibling at the school, what your proximity to the school, uh, but among those tiebreakers for oversubscribed schools was whether you would make the racial polarization of that school worse. If you would, then you would uh, lose the tiebreaker to someone who would make the uh, level of segregation of that school better. Um, and that factor, the fact that one of the tiebreakers was a race-conscious tiebreaker, even though it was with the aim of creating more integrated schools was considered by the plaintiffs that brought the lawsuit uh, incompatible with the uh, equal protection commitments of the constitution. 
Well, the majority on this case was very thin. Uh, how did the justices vote? You know, who who was on what side, and you know, how, how did it all fall out on the on the court? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's colloquially referred to as a five-four decision, but to be precise, it's really a four-one-four decision. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion uh, with one of his famous sort of sloganeering captions that the way to stop discrimination is to, the way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating by race. Um, Justice Breyer wrote the principal uh, dissent. It was a very impassioned and very lengthy uh, dissent on behalf of three other justices, Justice Souter, Justice Ginsburg, and Justice Stevens. Um, and the, the, the decisive vote was actually cast by Justice Anthony Kennedy, who had, because Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito had just joined the court, had become the swing justice, so to speak, replacing uh, Justice Andrew Day O'Connor, who had previously occupied that role. Um, justice Kennedy uh, ruled that, number one, there was a compelling state interest in promoting diversity in schools. And so one part of the two-part test to survive the strict scrutiny that racial classifications would trigger was satisfied, but he ultimately struck down the plans on the grounds that though they pursued a compelling state interest in the form of diversity, they were not narrowly tailored. They were not carefully designed to achieve that goal, or at least in his mind, not carefully designed enough. Well, what what makes it not narrowly tailored, according to Kennedy? What what would he have done that would have been narrowly tailored? You know, he he identified a number of ways of getting to the same goal, but in almost a pretextual way. For example, he suggested in his concurring opinion that school districts to achieve diversity could simply uh, build new schools in areas that were uh, mixed race, and therefore the local population where that new school siting was placed uh, would naturally be racially integrated. Not accounting, of course, for the fact that, as Justice Breyer points out, schools don't get built very often, and when they do get built, people can respond by moving. Um, but it's those kinds of things that, of course, Justice Breyer thought were insufficient that Justice Kennedy thought would be superior ways to achieve the same goal. Well, now, was this a highly political situation in Seattle? Was there a lot of controversy around this policy? Is that what made this thing something that made it to the Supreme Court? Or, you know, what were the what were the politics that were going on that was was driving this? Professor, what's staggering about this is it was so popular that they had a hard time finding someone to sue the school system. You know, the overwhelming majority of parents and children got their top choice. Uh, there were a number of very good schools to whom to which uh, students could apply. Uh, they actually had to manufacture an organization, the parents involved in uh, uh, Seattle schools, in order to establish standing, which is a constitutional requirement, to bring the lawsuit. There was a small enclave of very affluent uh, white uh, neighbors who were not able to get their preferred uh, choice school. And both out of principle and arguably out of uh, some impact on their children prospectively, not any particular child, but their organization argued that there was some damage to be done. But it was a wildly popular program. Justice Breyer remarked in his dissent that the very school districts that once upon a time had spurned school integration 
were now striving for it. They were working actively to ensure that you know children of different backgrounds went to school with one another. And here we found ourselves in 2007 with the Supreme Court standing in the way. Well, what makes this dissent worth publication in a Brookings book? I mean, there's lots of dissents written by members of the Supreme Court. I mean, they, they come out almost every week or at least towards the end of the term. Uh, so there must have been some something special about uh, the Breyer dissent in this case that makes this thing so so notable. So what would you say are the elements that make this a notable dissent well worthy of our attention and uh, rereading today? Yeah, I mean, God, there's so much, but I'll point to three specific elements. Number one, it is a very personal opinion, conspicuously so. Justice Breyer is a famously cool intellect, almost professorial in his style. But here we have a an opinion where for the only time among his many dissents as a circuit court judge and a Supreme Court justice, where he omits the word respectfully, respectfully in his final passage. He, he writes, instead of writing, as he typically does, for these reasons I respectfully dissent, he writes, this is a decision the court and this nation will come to regret I must dissent. It's a very impassioned personal plea on behalf of the son of a school board lawyer who appreciated the importance of this for the future of America. The second thing that I think is really conspicuous um, is the timing of it. This was the first term that Justice Alito and Chief Justice Roberts had arrived on the court. All of a sudden, there was a massive run of five, four cases, more in both raw terms and as a percentage than any other term in American history. And of those 25, I believe, five, four decisions, 23 of them, Justice Breyer, Justice Souter, Justice Ginsburg, and Justice Stevens, the so-called you know, liberal flank of the court, found themselves in dissent. And so it was also an important opinion because it's this moment in history where the political changes that were precipitated by appointments to the court suddenly were doing tremendous damage to longstanding precedent. Uh, and then the third and final thing is that Justice Breyer really does identify some critical legal analytics that would have implications for a number of other cases, including, of course, the Harvard case, where he noted that the kind of strict scrutiny, for example, that should be applied to race-conscious measures that divide people, that keep people apart, that say you have to ride on one bus for white people and another bus for white people, should not be the same scrutiny that is applied to race-conscious measures that try to bring the races together. And those kind of fundamental legal doctrines that Justice Breyer takes on in the context of this uh, opinion have ripple effects across a wide range of contexts and doctrines. Um, it was, as he has publicly described, you know, one of the most important opinions, dissent or majority of his career. And I think that's because of the timing and politics, the personal dimension, the legal doctrines and consequences, but also, and I'll end by saying this, his appreciation of the impact on society. Justice Thurgood Marshall in his Milliken versus Bradley dissent, the one you alluded to about Detroit, uh, he wrote, if, if our children do not learn together, there is little hope our people will ever learn to live together. And I think Justice Breyer appreciated that these resegregation cases, this this tandem of cases where the Supreme Court in the name of the reconstruction amendments was 
erecting a barrier to stop schools uh, and school systems from creating more integrated classrooms was doing a terrible damage uh, to the overall effort to create a more unified uh, and integrated society. Well, you know, I, in some ways I make a distinction between Millikan and Bradley. I wonder if you go along with me on this, because Millikan v. Bradley was a, a decision which was made in a context where there was a lot of conflict over busing kids across uh, metropolitan areas. And there was a lot of concern about white families that their kids were going to be bused to all black neighborhoods. And, and, all, and frankly, a lot of black families did not want their children bused long distances and end up in a, in a white school. So that, that decision, it really does change the landscape. You're, you're absolutely correct, but you can almost sort of feel like there's something in the political air that was uh, was in, in play. Parents involved is a little different. You know, as you described it, there was that choice, that concept of choice. You didn't, you know, that was really built into the plan and choice had become a fairly popular approach to, to policymaking uh, by the turn of the century. And and this was, uh, you know, crafted in order to benefit from that. So, so you know, why did they feel they had to get involved in this? What was the, what was, what, what was the larger political context that led these two new members of the court, or was it just, was it just their own ideology that was driving this? It's it's a terrific uh, question, and and I will add um, two touches to that. Um, one is if. If Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito had not come and ruled in the way that they had, um, no one would never even have noticed this case. You know, school districts across America were already doing this. I mean, the thought that the things that they were compelled by federal courts to do to achieve integration were now something that they were forbidden from doing, that was a pretty significant shift. But the, you know, the year before, it would have thought it would have been considered uncontroversial that school districts across America were trying to create more integrated uh, classrooms. I, I think a lot of it had to do with their view that a number of doctrines, from the affirmative action in schools context to racial quotas in employment and contracting context, to any number of other contexts in which race is a factor, because Absent considering race, it is difficult to remedy past uh, failures. Um, I think they saw an opportunity to, to draw a line in the sand and say, no, 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 no. If we're going to try to really achieve a colorblind society, we really have to close our eyes to, to, the, to the factor of color in, in, in our decision making. And, and I think they knew that it would have implications in a wide range of contexts, and they were prepared to get to work. You know, it was their first term there. Um, the only thing I'll say about the, the Milliken uh, decision where I might push back a little bit, you're absolutely right, far more controversial, far more um, uh, consequential as a, as a practical matter. But recall that I think what Justice Marshall was trying to do there was to, again, draw a line in the sand and say, listen, you can't escape our goal of integration by simply moving. And, and though it was disruptive for a time, in many ways, if Milliken versus Bradley had come out the other way, I think there's good reasons to believe that one of the results would have been that you would have had less white flight because moving to the suburbs doesn't get you out of integrated classrooms. And so a lot of folks would have just said, well, it's not going to help to move out to the county. Maybe there'd be a rush to private schools. That might have been you know, the next uh, sort of escape valve. But part of, I think, what Justice Marshall was trying to do there was to not allow 
an easy out of this you know, national project of creating a, a more unified and diverse society. Well, let me bring up another issue that uh, comes up frequently these days, and that's the multi-ethnic nature of our society, the, especially when you look at the school system. Our, our schools, you know, back in 1960 was 80% white. It was, uh, you know, like 15% black. And the percent black hasn't changed over time. It's still about 15% black, but the percent white has dropped from about 80% to less than 50%. And you've had a, you know, the major migration of uh, Latinos into the United States uh, from all parts of Latin America. And then you've also had a major uh, Asian migration. So the, you know, there's been a 30 percentage point increase in Latino and Asian students in our school system. So, and that was true in, in Seattle. In this very case, there were just, you know, uh, Seattle was a multi-ethnic and today remains a very multi-ethnic uh, city. So um, did the court sort of feel like, you look at, it's time to, the, you know, speaking in terms of black and white, you can't do that anymore. So is that a part of this story? No question. It was certainly a factor for Justice Kennedy. Um, you know, we don't have spent as much time uh, dwelling on it, but the Louisville case, which was an elementary school case, which was the it was the companion case to the Seattle's case, um, uh, you know, Meredith versus Jefferson County in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, uh, concerned elementary schools, and it was a much more black and white population. Um, and so these this tandem of cases raised, I think, your very uh, good point that uh, the demography of the nation had had changed dramatically from the stark black and white terms of the Brown versus Board of Education era. Um, I, I think that it is a complicating factor, but I think it what it points to is, is a lot of the wisdom that Justice Breyer had in saying, let not nine justices, you know, all black or white, as it turns out, of course, uh, sitting in Washington, D.C., try to be able to understand what diversity means uh, in one city versus another, in one community versus another. That is something that we perhaps set a floor for, you know, as a constitutional matter. But what exactly a school district is trying to achieve in terms of creating an integrated classroom, that is something for them to, to figure out. I'll, I'll just very briefly read for your listeners a passage from Justice Breyer's dissent where he says, I do not claim to know how best to stop harmful discrimination, how best to create a society that includes all Americans, how best to overcome our serious problems of increasing de facto segregation, troubled inner city schooling, and poverty correlated with race. But as, as a judge, I do know that the Constitution does not authorize judges to dictate solutions to these problems. It is for the people to debate how best to educate the nation's children and how best to administer Americans' schools uh, to achieve that aim. The court should leave them to their work. I find that to be the most effective answer to this complexity, which is in Baltimore City, diversity really does look black and white, one school versus another. That is very different from suburbs in Baltimore City, very different from Seattle, Washington versus the Deep South versus the Northeast versus California um, versus Texas and border states. But each of those cities, each of those communities and them grappling with what diversity means it's very difficult to try to telegraph a uniform answer from the, the, the rarefied air of the Supreme Court. So what you're saying is, is that when schools are, and, and what Justice Breyer was saying, quite frankly, what he was really arguing there, that if it's a case where 
you're getting a segregating school system, you know, it's up to the courts to uh, to prevent that. But when you've got a situation where a, a, a local government is trying to find a, a way of achieving greater integration, you should let them do their job rather than sort of um, create uh, rules that uh, may be totally inapplicable in this circumstance. That's exactly right. And your question, I think, uh, you know, runs in both directions. The fact that there are now 73 diasporas of Asian and, you know, 25 diasporas of, of, uh, of Latino only emphasizes the importance of allowing districts to decide what diversity needs to look like, acknowledging the simple reality that you cannot say all Black students have to go to this school and all white students have to go to that one. Um, when it becomes clear, and you have to, you know, you have to peel back the 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 drapes and look to see what is really happening. If it's clear that a school district like Seattle, like Louisville, it really is trying to achieve more integrated schools, let them leave them to their work. Well, so um, you know, people at Harvard always think, well, what does this have to do with Harvard? And of course, Harvard is involved in this thing because we now have the fair admissions case. Uh, or for whatever that group was called, the Committee for uh, Fair Ad Admissions, uh, and Harvard lost that case. And do you think that this this case in the parents involved really anticipates the what's what's going to happen uh, fifteen years later when the Harvard case makes it to the Supreme Court? I do in two respects. One, as you pointed out the realities of Seattle and the complex demographics of Seattle and Justice Kennedy's appreciation that treating Asians as one race or another and, you know, suggesting that diversity was not reflected um, as a result did start identifying a, a tactic that could be effective with the court of, you know, not uh, simply describing diversity goals as black or white and sort of seeing what other communities might be burdened, so to speak, by, by affirmative action or race-conscious um, application processes. The other way in which it is an anticipated, of course, is in that debate between Justice Stevens in his concurring dissent and Chief Justice Roberts in his slogan of the way to stop racial discrimination is to stop discriminating by race. And, and that is really sort of a worldview question of, is the only way to get to a colorblind society to truly be colorblind, literally shut our eyes and pretend we don't see it at all, or in order to create a society where color uh, and race doesn't matter, must we be uh, color and race conscious along the way? Um, and that I think is a, a real uh, a, a debate. It's a debate that's reflected certainly in the Seattle schools, but also in the, in the Harvard case and the one common thread and maybe sort of source of optimism coming out of both is um, democracies are innovative. You know, they are, um, they're, they're clever. And there will be ways, if we believe that it's important to achieve diverse goals, that we will get there. We're just making it harder. And we're making institutions and states and school boards labor under a pretext that they need not uh, uh, be burdened by. And I think that is the real obstacle. Consequential as I think this decision was, it makes everybody's lives harder. But what it really does is it makes us have to lie a little bit more to say, oh, just 
submit an application essay telling us about your background. Uh, and we'll just take account of your background uh, to achieve diversity. It just makes us pretend a little bit more than we need to that what we're not interested in is racial diversity or ethnic diversity or religious diversity. Um, when in fact, I, I think the folks that put in place the 13th, 14th and 15th amendments, the folks that put in place the civil rights laws of the 1960s were perfectly comfortable with the idea that in order to achieve a more integrated society out of many one, that, that aspiration would require uh, some race conscious, uh, deliberate steps uh, that reckon with our history and with our legacy. Well, that's a very interesting and thoughtful observation. Let me ask you one, about one thing that's come up, and that is moving to uh, economic issue, you know, uh, families, uh, income background, and that as a, a if you want diversity, either if you're talking in the, in the high school context or the elementary or in the college context, what if we substitute uh, income and economic background for, there's nothing as I, far as I can tell in any of the legal discourse that prevents an institution or a governmental agency from taking into account income. We're taking it into account every day when we set up a tax system, for example. So maybe that's going to be the one of the ways in which uh, society is going to adapt. And what do you think of that possibility? It, it, it's certainly a route, and frankly, it ought to be a route. We, we ought to account for socioeconomic uh, uh, diversity and the notion that we would have a quote-unquote diverse school that had a lot of very, very wealthy people of all different racial backgrounds, I don't know would be you know fully satisfying to those of us who think diversity is a virtue. At the same time, as a practical matter, in some communities, there are an overwhelmingly large number of poor white people and so if you said, well, we're going to make sure that there's socioeconomic diversity, you might end up with an all-white school with rich and poor white people. And so it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a solution that has got to be on the table. It's just incomplete in so many contexts uh, that I don't think it delivers the more nuanced construct of diversity that we all have in mind when we use that word. Well, thank you very much, Thru, for those insights and for your uh, introduction to this really uh, compelling new publication uh, uh, just released by the Brookings Institution. Thank you for joining me on the Education Exchange. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for focusing on this important issue. I have been speaking with Thiru Vignaraja, former Deputy Attorney General for the State of Maryland. Thiru is the uh, author of a lengthy, thoughtful introduction to a book by Justice Stephen Breyer entitled Breaking the Promise of Brown, the Resegregation of America's Schools. It's just been released by the Brookings Institution. It contains the brilliant dissent by Stephen Breyer in the Seattle case, Parents Involved versus Seattle. This is the Education Exchange. I am Paul Peterson. Please join me every Monday when another podcast is released on the Education Next website at noon Eastern time.